Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining us today. I just wanted to ask your help. I am looking to bring on another two clients. As you know, I do coaching. And if you know anyone who is looking to bring more excellence into their life in the areas of their own personal lives, their professional lives, their marriage, their business, I'm more than happy to have a free call to see if we'd be a good fit to work together. Please just refer them to me, Rabbi Rupp at gmail.com. Again, it's Rabbi Rupp at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be an emotional roller coaster this time around. I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing the well-known civil trial attorney Baruch Cohen, who is the author of Grieving and Healing Through the Prism of Torah, A Bereaved Parent's Spiritual Journey Beyond Pain and Grief, which he wrote as a response and as a result of losing his daughter, Hindi, at the young age of 17 and a half to cancer. This was a very, very intense episode. Baruch opens up about his experiences. I have a very hard time keeping it together. And what speaks to me and what spoke to me so profoundly was just the incredible capacity of the human will and what a person can achieve in the most dark and dire of circumstances. So this might not have the light touch that uh, some of our podcasts do, but this is part of life. And I am so honored and thrilled to have been able to have the opportunity to have this conversation with Mr. Cohen. With no further ado. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Lift Your Legacy podcast. Your recent book, Grieving and Healing Through the Prism of Torah, goes for journey of coping with the grief of the loss of your daughter. Before we delve into the book and the lessons and the life path that you have been on as a result of the unbelievable tragic experiences that you and your family have suffered. Tell us a little bit about who you are as the personality, uh, the attorney, and sort of your background. Sure. I'm Baruch Cohn. I live in Hancock Park in Los Angeles. I'm a lawyer. I'm a litigator. I'm a trial attorney. And I represent parties before juries, judges, but they din, based in got a lot of years of experience, and uh, I'm a husband, a daddy, and a good friend. When did you want to go into law? When I was in high school, I was studying for the rabbinate, and I was told that so long as I was in yeshiva, I was studying the, uh, the law of the prophets, of the Nevi'im. And once I became a lawyer, I studied the prophets of law. <laughs> but I want, to cor- I want to correct you. I want to adjust you, uh, Jacob. I'm a big fan of yours, but I don't use the word lost. You said that I lost my daughter. She died, but I never lost her. And it's a subtle distinction because so much of my grief was patterned after the words that the consolers would offer me. And I, you know, Hillary Clinton lost the race, lost connoting failure. I never viewed it as a loss. A death, yes, but never a loss. So when I hear someone say, I'm sorry for your loss. I say, I get it. I understand that that's the politically correct cliche. But I try to elevate the conversation by saying, nafsho kishura benafsho. 
Our, our souls were always connected and that connection never fades. And therefore I'm still connected and therefore I don't employ the word lost. So let's, let's look at that for a moment. This situation, if you could tell the viewers a little bit about sort of what the process of your daughter's illness was and how you started to process the, both the experience going through it and then subsequently, what was, that, what was that like for you? If you could just give us some context about the situation that happened. Sure. I lived what was considered a perfect life, you know, happy wife, happy family, happy kids, everyone's healthy, a nice law practice, the dedication to learning, community involvement. 17 years ago, our daughter uh, developed cancer. She was in Basiaco High School, and the world goes dark. Suddenly, you're thrust into a world of um, chemotherapy and words that you've never wanted to hear before if you're a parent, right? And you see pediatric oncology ads in the newspaper. Typically, you turn the page. You don't want to look at it. It's, it's a reality that no one wants to factor in. And suddenly, we were thrust into the world of, you know, chemotherapy and cancer. And instead of whispering so-and-so has, you know, and whisper the word. Now the word was blazoned in front of us. And we went through two and a half years of hell in hopes to beat the cancer. But it was an insidious, aggressive cancer called Ewing sarcoma. And it ultimately, you know, my daughter ultimately succumbed and her soul was returned to God two and a half years later. So for two and a half years, we went through what is known as the Shiva Maduri Gehenim, the seven gates of hell. Tell me how you started to talk to yourself and what your intellectual and mental process was as you went from the perfect life, and especially as an observant Jewish person that's working very hard on building themselves spiritually and being a part of the community. We, we don't live accidentally. We're very proactive in terms of what we're trying to do for God in the world. How did that conversation start in your head when you're now looking at this horrific situation. We believe that God creates the cure before the disease. One year before our daughter's diagnosis, I had this burning desire to learn about betachon, trust in God. Specifically, the Shar HaBetachon of Mechon Salubavos, a classic book, a Musser Sefer, originally written in, in Arabic, translated into Hebrew. The Hebrew was hard to, to digest. Even the English version was hard to digest until Feldheim came out with a manageable translation. And suddenly I was consumed with a need to learn about trusting in God when times were good. There was no emergency. There was no crisis. I have to believe that there was some cosmic chore choreography or some type of orchestration where God led me, Hashem led me to that book for a reason and gave me a solid structure by which to draw inner reservoirs of strength from during the upcoming crisis. You know, think about it. You go to Barnes & Noble and you're scanning the books. What makes you pick up that book? You know, you're in, you're in a Svarim store. What, may, what attracts you to that Jewish book? I don't believe in serendipity and I don't believe in coincidence. I believe that God is always navigating us. So I was very fortunate to have had that type of experience 
prep me. And again, at the time that I was doing it, I had no idea what was on the horizon. I had no idea what was around the corner. Once we were in hell, which is really what this experience is all uh, analogous to, there were healthy outlets. Writing was a healthy outlet. Or when you're stuck in a bone marrow transplant unit, you have very little access to the outside world. The internet is now your savior. The internet is your access to all the great rabbis, all the great, you know, it's having a library in your mini, in your mini Auschwitz, so to speak, where you, it's the pure hell. So writing and wrestling with my own negative emotions that kept surfacing, wrestling with my own, you know, evil inclination to get angry or to be rejectful of God and all that. I had to work it out. Can I, so when that, I mean, that, that itself is a unbelievable idea because a lot of us look at our negative emotions and the frustration, again, the frustrations and in the minutia of life. And here you're dealing with something much bigger. You're saying that our emotions and our anger towards God and our anger towards our situation you have to be cognizantly fighting that down and realizing that that's not appropriate at a given situation? Yes. There is a black hole that exists that sucks you into it. It's like a vortex. When you're in a crisis, I don't mean you, when someone is in a crisis situation, they tend to push fast forward and start thinking out worst case scenarios. It creates depression. It creates resentment. And all of the bad emotions or the stereotypes that we harbor tend to come out. And when you meet other families in such nightmarish situations who don't have a healthy structure of religion, and you hear, where is God? Or, I'm angry at God. How could he do this to me? Which is human. Everyone thinks it as soon as they get hit with a, a big zets, a big you know, potch in life. Suddenly, now everyone says, where's God? But he was, he was there when times were good, and now he's there when times are bad. But you hear a lot, and you find yourself um, evolving or avalanching down a mountain of unchecked emotion. And unless you have an anchor, which I believe the Torah is, and unless you have markers where you can somehow slow your descent, I'll give you a perfect example, perfect example. A person is in a hopeless situation, meaning the helpless situation. I don't mean hopeless. And, you know, as a parent, there's nothing you can really do to save that child. You can introduce them to the right doctors. You can hope the chemotherapy cocktails are working. But there's an element of helplessness. So to obtain control over a situation where you lack control, you tend to think of guilt and if unfortunately one of the one of the dangers of one of the dangers of unchecked religious thought is that somehow my sin created this scenario and guilt is something that is widespread among um, religious people who don't have the right religious uh, perspective where they realize that guilt is not necessarily helpful and not necessarily conducive because you can spiral and there's no way out of that mess. And if there's a disaster, how will I be able to survive this uh, 
this problem, this nightmare, if I'm blaming myself. It's not healthy to function. Yet even religious people think along these lines. There's a Talmudic passage which applied many years ago, which said when bad times fall upon you, you have to analyze your, your character traits and, and, and isolate the sin so that you could do you could repent. Well, that's great. But I don't believe that we're made of such great stuff nowadays. We're not like the brothers of Joseph standing in front of him in Egypt, being able to isolate, oh, we're being punished because of the sale of Joseph. We're not that big. And we're because we're tenuous and we're relatively weak, we're nowhere as strong as our ancestors were. So a little bit of guilt can consume us. You know, sometimes some people are like oak trees and some people are like tissue paper. Our great-grandparents could perhaps entertain the guilt and work on themselves because that match is not going to incinerate that oak tree. But when we're weak and we're vulnerable and then we, we try to ignite that, you know, that tissue paper with that little match, suddenly it's, it's a conflagration. One of the things you spoke about in the book, which is really a compilation of different talks that you gave and different correspondences you had with rabbis, I believe it was with the Belzer Rebbe, where you brought up this concept. We look at ourselves and we blame ourselves and we don't have that, that bandwidth anymore. The greatest rabbis had the greatest sensitivities. And while it, we are correct about referring to them as giants, and we are correct at looking at ourselves as monkeys in comparison to the greatness of our ancestors, yet when you read what they wrote and you, you, you feel their pain, they were able to channel their pain directly through you know, their writings, you see how human and how real they are, but they did, they were able to exercise a strong degree of control. I want to share something with you that is just mind boggling. It's not in the book, just recently learned of it. There was a great rabbi named Rabbi Moshe Shapiro. He died, he's a Rosh Hashiva. He died over a year ago. He had a daughter who died. And his mind was racing at, on his way to the funeral as anyone's mind was. And he was an incredible Torah scholar. And he starts harboring negative emotions, which is normal. Because your evil inclination tries to fight you no matter how big you are. And suddenly he's harboring thoughts of heresy. He's harboring thoughts of resentment and anger at God. And listen to what he says. He says, the Torah says that there are three partners to a, to a child, the mommy, the daddy, and God. And the law of partnership is that you cannot withdraw, a partner cannot withdraw partnership assets without the consent of the other partners. So this Rabbi Shapiro says, wait a minute, God, we're partners with our daughter. You took my daughter and you didn't ask me for my consent. How could that be? All of a sudden he goes like this. What was I thinking? There was a Rashba, a commentary named the Rashba. He says there's a famous Rashba in partnership law that if a partner can withdraw partnership assets without the consent of the partners, so long as it's for the benefit of the partnership. Comes along, Rabbi Shapiro goes, oh, it must be that it's for the best. You see how a great rabbi is, it doesn't allow his, his emotions to rule him, but is able to draw inspiration and navigation and consolation 
and ultimately transcend the most painful moment by an archaic halacha and Jewish law on partnerships. Meaning, if your mind is trained with Torah values, <clears throat> when these things happen, you're not sitting vulnerable and just going with the flow and allowing your emotions to take you wherever. You have a structure that you could fall on, and this is just an amazing story of how a Talmud Chacham, how someone steeped in Torah learning can use that Torah learning to help navigate him. Another quick story. There's a rabbi in Los Angeles, a big Talmud Chacham, big Talmudic scholar, Rabbi Nachum Sauer. He's a Kohen. He can't go into cemeteries, but for the death of his father, he was able to go into a cemetery because you're allowed to for certain immediate relatives. His father's buried deep into the cemetery. He knows that this is going to be the last day he'll ever be able to pray at his father's site. His mind is racing with himself, and he's feeling ripped off, and it's not fair. And all of a sudden, he stops himself, and he says, wait a minute. If the halacha tells me, a Kohen, that I can't go again, then I have to maneuver my emotions to accommodate the halacha and seek my consolation elsewhere. What an amazing, amazing power that is to be able to navigate and orchestrate through the prism of Torah. How did you not lose hope? And then when the worst did occur, how did you rebuild and how did you go forward? I was asked this question, was I angry? So many bereaved parents that I meet, so many people going through a tragedy are angry. And I said, honestly, disappointed, but not angry. And they asked me, how is it possible to not be angry? This touches on the, the issue, and I'll translate it. It's called carving out simcha mitoch tzara, carving out happiness from tragedy. You know, the last thing I want to be is an ingrate. There are 50 things that could have happened that didn't. My daughter died beautifully without, a, without being deformed. My last image of her was beautiful. Unfortunately, I've seen children in onco oncology wards who are horrifically uh, deformed. Um, thank God I had eyes during this entire time. Thank God I was breathing during all this time. Thank God everything was intact. Thank God my daughter didn't suffer. There's so many categories of hell that I could have I could have descended into the into the abyss. But God spared me from those. And every single molecule of the test. Is, have, is, is, is weighed with exactness. So if God spared me all of these, you know, think to yourself, you, uh, you have a friend, he's having financial troubles. Okay, it's bad, but you could be blind too. You could be a multiple amputee too. You could be totally crippled too. You could be divorced too. I mean, there's so many ways you could be, you could, oh, you're not you're having health challenges. Okay. You could be broke too. No matter what you're in, you could, if you fantasize and think of all the categories of how worse it could get, and then thank God that you were spared these nightmares and you were just given this little test, then I believe 
it would be I would be ungrateful. I would be an ingrate to be mad at God for giving me this test because he spared me and my wife. There was no suffering. She died with a kiss of death, Amisa Nishika. There was no suffering. No parent wants to see a child suffer. I'm forever indebted to God for this. So because I had this clarity of gratitude to God, disappointed, it hurt, I cried a lot, I still cry a lot. But the issue of anger, I've never, you know, I've resisted that, that negative hole of anger. And in the aftermath of the tragedy, that is not to, I don't want it said, or I don't want anyone to think that the guy is not, you know, he's sipping Kool-Aid. And he's, you know, my feet are on terra firma. I bleed just like anyone else. And so help me, I cry, if not as much as anyone else. But it's a constant battle to resist that negative gravitational pull towards depression and guilt and anger. And what's fascinating about a Torah discipline, what's fascinating, is the Torah knows your triggers. The Torah knows where your evil inclination will drag you to. And when the Torah, I'll give you an example. When the Torah, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt honor thy parents. Do you know why it's a commandment? Because the natural inclination of people is not to respect the elderly. So the Torah trains you to go to fight the grain, to go against where your gravitational pull will be. What you're saying is so overwhelming in the sense that you're you're describing that there's sort of like you're pushing off the darkness. And so I guess practically speaking, if there could be something that we could bring down that, you know, God forbid a person shouldn't have to deal with any of these situations, you know, as, as you have as, you know, we, as we go through it, I guess two of the practical things, which I think would be greatly illuminous if you could tell us, were you writing down as you're trying to find the good points in your life? Like how does that, how did that actually translate to a practice of, pushing away the despair over a terrible situation and maintaining that gratefulness to, to God and, and not becoming, so to speak, like you said, an ingrate. I have a feeling you somehow invaded and hacked my brain and came <laughs> up with every question that I would want asked of me, literally. Yes, yes, Jacob, I did keep a diary, a daily diary, a diary of gratitude, a diary of fear. I expressed it all. Uh, a diary of regrets, a diary of wishes. And, uh, you know, it's not all rose-colored. It was a diary of real fear. And I had to isolate it. And I felt that by writing it, I owned it. Um, when my emotions were running wild, okay, and your mind rushes to, you know, worst-case scenarios, right? How do you function during this time when, you know, when there's waves coming at you, you know, if you don't control it, it's like a runaway train. It's like a runaway uh, hor uh, caravan of horses. You can't rein it in. So I didn't want to be in a situation where I was beyond control. So I kept a diary. It's a personal diary. I shared it with friends. There were certain lifelines who I uh, stuck to. And in the spirit of the OJ trial, I created a dream team. I created a dream team of people that I could vent to, people who were good listeners, and I wasn't able to talk to them 
I was isolated. They couldn't come to where I was unless they went through an hour of uh, scrubbing, okay, to avoid germs. So internet and email was my link. And there were certain people who guided me with Jewish law and halacha. There were certain people who were guiding me with hashkafa and philosophy. There were certain people who were helping me coordinate dinners and, uh, you know, food for what my daughter wanted. Um, and there were also people who gave me good sound advice. And there were other people who just were good listeners. So I kept a diary. And um, it's called... Lonislach Velonishkach, the um, the uh, official theme of the Gush Katif Jews, will never forget and will never forgive, right? And it was really, you know, people said horrific things to me. The the slop, the, the irresponsible people within our community, and I, and when people said misguided things to me, and it hurt, and it it it, it caused me immeasurable pain. Okay. I had to control myself from, uh, you know, descending into the abyss of hatred. And my ears were burning. I wanted to kill him. You know, I was so angry. And writing it out and sending it to a colleague and getting their guidance was my way of controlling it and owning it and, and mastering it and working on myself when times were rough. Because, you know, if you're... If you're an EMT, an emergency medical guy, you don't want to start learning about trusting in God once you're in a foxhole, once the bombs are going around you. So I wanted to, you know, and I feared in the back of my, in the in the deep recesses of my heart, I feared the worst case scenario of a death. And I have responsibilities to my wife and my children and my friends and my clients that I'm going to need to be strong at that time. So I could not afford the luxury of just throwing up my arms and say, the hell with it all. So it was the writing that really, really helped guide me, the feedback from great people, and I sought them out. And this is what started my passionate writing. So... One other point that I, I wanted to articulate, make sure that I, that I understood from you saying, was that you used your own emotional navigation system, that when you felt angry and depressed, it was evidence of the fact that something was going wrong with how you were responding to the situation. Because a lot of times, one of the big fears that everybody has is how will I respond when I'm under pressure. And, you know, it's very easy to get up and give a speech about being, you know, calm and, and, and trusting God. But that's like you said, you know, kind of coming from someone that, that doesn't have these experiences that are, that are difficult. And I guess, how did you monitor your emotions? How did you figure out like how to navigate that system as you were going through such a difficult process of it actually happening to you? Two things. One, I maintained lifelines with great rabbis throughout the, the process so that when I crashed emotionally, and I did, and I freaked out, there was a healthy structure, a healthy environment where I was allowed to vent, allowed to break down, allowed to cry, but there was a hot sola there, you know, there was a, uh, an EMT there, the rabbi was there, and we're not talking about any Tom, Dick, Harry rabbi, we're talking about 
the cream de la cream of brilliant, sensitive, magnificently emphatic and sympathetic rabbis with experience who literally carried me on their shoulders throughout. But the second point is brings me to the introduction of who I am. I'm a trial attorney. I'm used to fighting. And I'm used to championing the cause of somebody. And I determined early on that I need to represent myself. I have an adversary. It's called depression. It's called fear. It's called losing your belief in God. And how am I going to fight that adversary? In what courtroom can I fight him in? I wanted to be the trial attorney of my emotions and my dealing with pain and fear and ultimately death. And I wanted to be in charge, the surgeon, the chief surgeon in the room, the boxer in the boxing ring, the chief trial counsel in the trial. It was on me and I needed to set an example to my family and to my, my clients and my friends you know, of control. And this has a phenomenal trickle-down effect. When my daughter saw me walk into the room like a king, so to speak, it uplifted her. If I were to walk into the room looking dejected, it has an effect. So I made it my business that when I walked into the room, I projected optimism. And it's going to work. And think good, and it'll be good, as they say in Yiddish. Tracht gut wird sein gut. And create uh, um, and foster a positive, hopeful, optimistic message where I was speaking to myself too. And it wasn't false. I had to believe in it. Because if I wasn't sincere and, I, and it didn't resonate deeply inside of me, and it was just lip service, it wouldn't meet its target. It wouldn't hit. Unbelievably powerful. And now if we go to the part where the worst does happen and, you know, for so many of us that have that message of, you know, think good and it will be good when then when in our mind, it doesn't work and, and the worst happens, what's the next step the day after the, the, the year after what, what was that like for you and how did you start to rebuild? A lot of tears. You know, um, as I said earlier, I'm as human as you. You know, I reject, I said earlier that so much of my grief was patterned, was impacted and affected by the cliches and the religious cliches that were thrown at me. But when you think about some of the... Can you elaborate on what that means, just for those of us that aren't clear, like myself? I'll give you two. Someone said... Oh, God only hits those with tests who can handle it. I said, he has bad aim. I can't handle it. Because that message, if you think about it, might work for you when times are good. And it might work for you if you've never been touched and affected by a tragedy. But to the person who is bleeding, all right, and is in massive pain, what, I was targeted for this? And my, and my ability to pull myself out of the abyss is easy because I'm some supermensch, I'm an ubermensch? Oh, I was, 
I'm spe- no, 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 no. It's a, I, I found it to be a devastating th- statement. I learned the Ramban, the commentary on the Torah, which addressed w- the source of this, and I see how people misquoted it. It was a misquote, but it becomes, it becomes a, a cliche that's used and bounced around. Or, for example, someone would say, oh, life will never be the same. Okay, so where do I go with that? Like, what, what am I supposed to, how am I supposed to respond to that? And when life isn't the same as it was before, so now I'm going to get further depressed. Because I'm, but wait a minute. What if life wasn't meant to be the same with a test? But yet the message that people are sending me is like I'm careening down a slope as a result of it. Or, for example, when people say, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, that's what everyone says. But, you know, here, here's the way I look at it. When God brings Mashiach and the dead will be resurrected and I'll be reunited with the ones I love. I see them coming over. To, I see my daughter saying to me, you know, Abba, Father, what was this about me being lost? I was your Melitz Yosher. I was, your inter- I was interceding the whole time. I was in another room lost. How could you say that about me? I never want to have that conversation. I had to develop very early on to isolate the emotions, where am am I going with it? How is it affecting me? Is it correct? I also learned very early on that my Torah observance was a barometer as to how I'm reacting. You know, if I wanted to chuck my yarmulke, if I wanted to not go to shul in protest, which are healthy responses, don't get me wrong, but my fidelity to my observance was my barometer to see how I'm doing. So afterwards, there was a lot of tears. I felt, by the way, that there was too much of an emphasis on how's he doing, on the healing aspect, when there was very little emphasis on on validating the pain. You know, I was telling people that people were asking me, how are you doing? Yeah, how's he doing? I'm concerned. You know, before you run to the cure, understand the wound has to the wound has to manifest itself. I have to respect the pain. God wanted me to have this pain for a reason. People were offering me drugs. People people were offering me drugs to numb the pain. I declined because, in my opinion, the road to healing involves the road of grief, and that unresolved grief is like putting a basketball under a carpet. It's just going to come at me at a later time. But how do you create the, the mindset? Because there is such a need and a desire to run to comfort and death and, and, and all of these horrible things. It's like we, we, try to, we try to say, okay, I'm done suffering right now. Okay, let me, let me just move on. So how did you have the ability to sit under that pressure and actually not try to get rid of it? I don't have an answer to that question. It was an instinctive no, not a well-thought-out no. Um, later on, I appreciated the brilliance of the no, later on. But I credit that instinct, that instinct on all the work I've been doing on bettering myself, on sh- strengthening myself. Um, 
at that moment when the guy and by the way if people do need opiates so they do need to take themselves off the edge to get through the day i'm not judging them it didn't it wasn't something i wanted to do and by the way this sounds dark but after my daughter died my pain was my connection to my daughter so in a way i wanted that that scar i needed that scar i needed that I was afraid of losing it. Do you try to hold on to it now? Like, how did you, how do you build back that connection with your daughter that's not necessarily the, the scar, or is the scar productive forever, and to feel that pain forever, and never to have it get healed? Um, through a lot of hard work and time, God is the healer of the broken heart. He is the rofeilish vurei leiv, as David HaMelech says in Tehillim. You know, a flat tire will never inflate on its own, Jacob, ever. You could, time will never, will never inflate a deflated tire, ever, right? But you got to work at it. And I went through a metamorphosis. When I was at ground zero, the, tra the ultimate tragedy of a parent is, was, yeah. was the day of the death. I was pain. I was synonymous with pain. I was one big ball of pain. There was no room for anything else in my, in my C drive, okay? I was pain. Anything that's, you know, I was like, anything that came in my universe was, was singed from my pain. But then things transmigrated out. Things morphed. And I went from being pain to having pain. You, do you appreciate that subtle difference? That, that ultimately you weren't, again, you said the same thing when, when you were talking about writing is, is the ability to transition from saying this is my essence to this is an emotion or an experience that I'm having. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And I, I actually got this line from Sherry Mandel's book, The Blessings of a Broken Heart, about her son, Kobe, who was tragically murdered by uh, Arab terrorists in the Tekoa Caves in Israel. She went from being pain to having pain, and that really resonated. Another important thing I should tell you is I'm a voracious reader. I read everything on this planet that would assist, and as a result, you sort of like harvest the good from the not so good to the garbage. And I started collecting, I actually wrote another book um, called Chizuk to the Bereaved Parent, and I called it Rabbi Yochanan's Bone. Rabbi Yochanan was a Tana, he, Great rabbi, rabbis of the Mishnah, 11 children of his died. And he made a necklace of his 11th child's bone. And whenever he heard of a bereavement, he would go and pay a shiva call and show the bone. And that to me was what I was doing with my books. You know, sharing my paint with others, validating, and such an important issue, the issue of validating someone else's paint, it's huge. So, you know, the reading, the consulting, the writing, the discipline, the wanting to be the lawyer of my own, you know, it all, it all contributed to a certain degree of strength and leadership. Did you not want that? Did you embrace that as part of your healing process? The, the thing that comes to mind was there was the, that horrible fire, those two horrible fires in, in Brooklyn, and the father kind of emerging from the ashes and, and becoming someone that says, okay, I can, I 
can talk now. Was that, how, how did you look at that? Did you say, I need to do this is now like God's identifying a mission for me? Or is it just like, this is a part of my therapy. This is something else I'm doing to feel good. I believed that the video of life is on during your test. When you're being tested, the video of life is on. And that's the moment where you transcend or crumble. I can't believe I'm quoting Jesse Jackson. I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth. But when Jesse Jackson lost the Iowa caucus, he was on Nightline with Ted Koppel. And Ted Koppel said to him, Reverend Jackson, how is it you're still stumping for the presidency after you lost the Iowa caucus? There's no hope. And he said something to me which really resonated. He said, Mr. Koppel, I, I am like a car with different gears. Some people, when they're in a crash, they, the gear shift into neutral. Some people, when they hit an impact, they go into reverse. He says, I'm locked in forward gear. And I said, wow, what a great, what a great lesson from this anti-Semite, you know, to learn from everybody. I believe the, the video cameras of life, I will be judged by the test. Not when times are good, but what kind of faith, what kind of husband, what kind of father will I be when times are rough? I didn't ask for it. I don't want it. I, I didn't want to be targeted. You know, I didn't want to feel that there was a bullseye on my chest and God chose me because I could handle it. Like I said, he's got bad aim. I can't handle it. I'm joking, tongue in cheek when I say God has bad aim. But, you know, and there was nothing, there was nothing, there wasn't a prophet you know, biblical uh, light that came down from the heaven, uh, enlightening me, you know, with his, with his mission. I felt this was my calling. I was given this test for a reason. I don't know this reason, and I will never know this reason. Maybe after 120 years, when I go up to heaven, uh, it'll be shared with me. But that's not the controlling factor. What am I going to do with it, my life now? What kind of person will I be? Will I crumble? will I transcend? And will I inspire and help others? If I could get through it, then any person who's watching this video feed with you can tap into my res. You know, if I could do it and I'm just like you, then maybe you can get through your hard times as well. So I do this in this, in the, in the spirit, in, in, not in memory of my daughter, but with my daughter's soul to, to honor her, to give the merits to her. You know, you asked earlier what I do. You know, when I make Kiddush Friday night, I make Kiddush for all my children, including the one in heaven. When I bless my children, Friday nights, all my children. So I don't do things in memory of, I do things with her soul. When I, when I, when I, was, when I was privileged to marry off a daughter, I wanted my daughter. I felt my daughter's soul with me and sharing the good. So, you know, there's, you go through something like this, you feel there is something that God wants from. There is some latent, latent skill that I'm given this test. I didn't want it. I don't want it. You know, someone said to me while I was a very hurtful comment, that someone told me what a wonderful uh, opportunity I have to have such a, you know, have, what a wonderful schuss you have to have such a, I said, Emir Tzashem by you. And he got offended. I said, why is it okay for me? 
it's okay for me to have the, you know, the test and you're, and you're being so from about it. But when I reciprocate, you get offended. Don't do me any favors. I didn't want it. But if, you, if you're raised with a certain, you know, responsibility, a sense of clawl, a sense of, you know, what type, what, how will your family survive this, this test? Will, will they look at Abba as a guy who turned to opiates, poor guy? Or maybe one day my children might, God forbid, have a test. And maybe they'll be able to survive it magnificently. And maybe it's because my wife and I were able to show that, set them a fantastic example of strength. And maybe they can step into our footsteps and tap into that, that example. For those of us that are in the position of trying to comfort mourners, um, what do you recommend is the right thing to say now having gone through the other side? And how, how do you properly you know, show that level of, of, of connection to someone that's going through tragedy? First, listen. Don't be eager to talk. Validate the mourner's pain. Ask the mourner if you don't know the person who died. Tell me a little about your mother. Or say, I heard things about your mother or father that were so magnificent, so inspiring. Veering into philosophy and veering into lecture mode and cliche mode and start telling me that this is for the best and start telling me how I ought to think and start shoveling from think my way <laughs> is a very dangerous uh, valley to descend into because you might say the wrong thing. It might be hurtful. You know, be there as a friend. Talk about, you know, how much you love the person who's going through a hard time, how much you respect them. Um, the time of Shiva is the time of tears. It's not the time for lecturing. People could really, really knock this into their head. Unless you're asked to come and say something, right? Unless you are being asked to provide some form of direction or inspiration, Shiva is not the time to espouse your beliefs in the way things go in the world, okay? And if you're intuitive, you go into the kitchen, see what they need, and go get it. There's no cutlery. Go get, go get dinner and bring it. They'll thank you for it, you know? People avoided me at first on eggshells. What do I say? What do I not say? Sometimes the hug is all you need. Hey, let's go for a walk together. Would you like to, you know, take a two-mile hike? Get, move. You've been sitting for a week, you know? Think about what that person needs. Lawyers approached me during my shiv and said, do you have any hearings you need me to cover for, whatever you need? Think, what does that person need? And try to be a good friend. Baruch Cohen, the book is called Grieving and Healing Through the Prism of Torah. It's available on Amazon. It's a, it's a great comfort to me and uh, God willing for my daughter's soul that this type of inspiration is spreading. Uh, I just met rabbis recently, plural, who told me that they're now giving it to people when they pay a shiva call because it's really good direction about the world of healing and grieving. Baruch, thank you so much for the time. It was unbelievably in insightful. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up. 
and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.